Good weekend, everybody. I want to let you know that something exciting happened this week. God took ownership of the Music Box Theater through Wooddale Church. We signed the papers and uh, it now belongs to us in the Loring Park campus. <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, it really does belong to God. We're, we're here to steward it for him. And right away, we want to make it available to others. So uh, within uh, like 24 hours, we had 600 students from a local uh, Minneapolis school come and use it for a function. And you see a picture up there of that event. And so we just want, we want to use it to connect with people and build relationships and eventually point them toward Jesus. So we're excited about that. We're in a series, if you're new with us, called Encounter. We've been looking at this ancient artifact called the Tabernacle. We've actually had it out here, a replica of it. Um, over 5,000 people have been through it uh, the last 10 days. And uh, I hope if you have been through it, that it's been very uh, meaningful to you and, and experiential. Because, you know, it represents God's wanting to dwell with his people. And God still wants to dwell with us. And he... As a believer, he comes to dwell in our lives. We've been learning a lot about it. In fact, it's been so inspirational that uh, some folks have gone home and built their own tabernacles. Uh, we had a father and his son go home and do that. And they sent in a picture of what they built. There it is for you. It is a Lego tabernacle. Quite phenomenal. And the father sent me a little note. And I, I asked if I could share it with you. And he said I could. He said, the Tabernacle series inspired my son and I to build a model of the Tabernacle. After we finished, he wanted me to share it on social media and send you a copy. He told me that maybe if we shared this, it would get more people who like Legos interested in church. I like that. I like that. <clears throat> Afterwards, we searched online and found that lots of people have had the same idea of building the tabernacle out of Legos. And some of the models are quite elaborate. But he noted that ours was the only example we could find with the pillar of fire. And he thought that was pretty cool. Well, I think that's pretty cool too. So uh, this weekend, we're actually talking about the high priest. So I thought to myself, well, uh, maybe the challenge is to go build a Lego high priest. So if you accomplish that, send us a picture. You can go online probably and Google a picture of what the Israelite high priest looked like and build your Lego. But we're going to talk about the high priest because he's an important part of the tabernacle. Uh, he is there to perform some very important functions. And the high priest in the tabernacle is a picture of our high priest, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but you have a high priest. I have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. And to understand what that means for us is why we're going to look at this today. And in particular, we're going to look at the garments that the high priest wore. So you see this mannequin with a garment on there. And by the way, the garment was designed by God. It had to be constructed exactly as God said. This was the everyday garment that the high priest wore. It had purple it had blue, it had scarlet, it, had, it was fine linen, and it had gold thread in it. In fact, it rivaled any royal robes of the surrounding nations because this person had a huge office, the high priest especially, to stand before God. So very important. Now, once a year, he would take off all the, all the pretty stuff from the garment. It's called the golden garment as well. 
And uh, if you'd like to read more about it, you can, on your own, read Exodus chapter 28 or chapter 39. I'm not going to read through that. It's very meticulous. But if you're having a hard time sleeping, that's a couple of good chapters to read, all right? Uh, not to take away from God's Word, but is there lots of detail there. So check it out. But anyway, uh, once a year, he would take off the, the priest stuff, and he would just wear a white tunic, a white sash, and a white turban over his head. He would look like all the other priests, very plain and ordinary, because on the Day of Atonement, when he would wear, when he would wear this, he was really going in as a servant. He was going in to make atonement for his sins, so there's great humility in that, and then he's going in and make atonement for the sins of the nation. But the rest of the year, this is what he wears. Now, uh, as we think about what he wears and, and how he dresses, we're reminded of the fact that it has great meaning to it. And the question is, what, what do all these pieces and parts mean insofar as the actual garment. And some people have over-ascribed meaning to it, right? They, they mean well, but you look at some Bible studies, some pastors, and it's like, I could do a sermon on every piece. You can make so much out of it. I just want to give you a quick overview and just draw your attention to a couple of general things. And we'll put some references up on the screen that you can jot down if you want to go back and look at these pieces in more detail. But the first are the britches, right? So he had to wear britches. They had to go from the waist down to the knees. And that represents modesty. And by the way, they had to dress exactly like God said or suffer consequences like death. So it's like big deal how you dress before God in the Old Testament, especially for the high priests. Next, uh, he would wear this piece down here, which is a separate piece. It is the white linen piece. And uh, that would go from the neck all the way down. And the white represents God's righteousness, represents holiness. And so he has to appear before God that way. Next piece is this blue robe that you see here that would be worn. And uh, it's all one piece, uh, one, one garment. It has bells and has representations of pomegranates that alternated all the way around. And uh, it was double-stitched at the collar uh, so that it couldn't be torn. And that represents royalty. And then over that was this piece called the ephod. All right. Now, the ephod was like an apron. It hung on the front, hung on the back. It was held together by two onyx stones on the shoulder, one on the left shoulder, one on the right. And on the onyx stones were uh, uh, put in there, engraved in there, the names of the children of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. Six on one side, six on the other, and in birth order. Then... Over it was a very important piece called the, the breast piece. Now, the breast piece was hung on by a gold chain on the top and a blue ribbon around the bottom. And it was like a piece of cloth finely woven that folded together at the top. And inside were the Urim and the Thummim, these uh, strange stones. We don't know a lot about them other than the fact that sometimes God would use them to give a yes or no answer to the high priest. And how that worked, we're just not sure. There's speculation about it. But what we do know for sure is that there were four rows of three stones each, precious gems on it. Each one was, again, uh, inscribed, engraved the names of the children of of Israel. He would, he would bear that before God. So that's like a, a quick overview of the garment. 
And that's how he was supposed to dress as he came before God. Now, why, why is that important to you and me? What does that mean for you and me? Well, just as the high priest has to dress a certain way to come before God, we have to dress a certain way to come before God as well. The question is, well, how are we supposed to dress? I mean, for guys, does that mean that, you know, you should wear a suit coat and a tie? And I just didn't feel like wearing a tie today. I rebelled, all right? Uh, and shiny shoes, is that what it means? Does it mean as a woman? Like, my mom grew up in a movement that was very conservative. And my mom uh, always wore a dress. It was just, you just didn't wear anything but a dress as a woman because that was appropriate, especially when you went to church. And she wore very little jewelry, just her wedding ring and a watch, wore no makeup. It was a very legalistic kind of movement. And the idea was if I, you know, I got to dress the right way to be accepted by God. Is that what it means? Answer is no, no. But there is a way we're supposed to dress when we come before God. You say, well, what is that way? It's described for us in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says, For you are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all of you have been united with Christ in baptism. That means you've been converted, and baptism is a sign that you've given your heart to Christ. But then he says, he says, And all of you have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Another version says, Clothe yourself in Christ. So when I come before God, I come before him clothed in Christ, which means I come before him with the righteousness of Christ draped over me. I come before him with the holiness of Christ draped over me. I can't, I can't come before him in my own righteousness because the Bible says my righteousness is as filthy rags. And I can't, I can't come before him in my own version of holiness because my version of holiness is legalism. I come, and I come with what he's prepared for me and what he puts on me when I receive his son. And so you, if you're a believer today, you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You're dressed in the holiness of Christ, and that's why God can accept you. That's why you can appear past the, holy of, past the veil into the very holy of holies and come right into the presence of God because of how he has dressed you. I think it's so important for me and for you every day when we wake up, if we're followers of Christ, to look in the mirror, not at how we're physically dressed, but to look in the mirror as we see our physical dress, to remind ourselves of our spiritual dress, that we're dressed in the righteousness and holiness of Christ, and don't go and get those garments dirty with sin and disobedience. Now, there's a piece of the garment that I did leave out. We're going to talk about it now for the rest of the message. And that is this, this crown of sorts, this turban that we see here. Now, it's described in a couple of passages of Scripture. For instance, simply in, uh, I keep forgetting this, by the way. If you'd like to, if you'd like to get more information on, on how this was made and how it's worn, there's a wonderful URL site, YouTube, you can go to. We'll put it up and we'll put it on the blog as well. But if you watch that, you'll see it being made in modern terms. You'll see them making it, and then you'll see it being put on the model, the real person. And it's just a unique way to understand it, so you might want to check that out. But I do want to talk about this turban, this, this, this headdress for, for a, a little while. And there are two passages of Scripture that remind us of it. One's found in Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. It just simply says, there are the garments, they are, these are the garments they are to make. A turban, a hat, a headdress. Then it tells us in uh, verse 36 a little bit what's supposed to go on that headdress. 
It says, next make a medallion of pure gold. So we've got this piece, it's actually leather on this model, but it would have been a gold medallion that would fit over the, the headpiece. It says, engrave it like a seal with these words, holy to the Lord. Attach the medallion with a blue cord to the front of Aaron's turban where it must remain. Now, we'll come back to that in a little bit, that, that gold uh, uh, plate that's on the, on the turban. But why, why do I want to spend so much time on this headdress? And that's because if you look at Israel carefully in the Bible, they, there's actually two forms of headdress that were worn. One was by the king. The king would wear a crown. The other was by the priest who would wear this fancy turban that represented two lines in Israel. There was the kingly line, think of David, the king. There was the priestly line that descended from Aaron, the Levites. And in the Bible, the priest may never wear the crown. You can't combine the two. And the king can never wear the turban. They are separated. Now, one of the reasons why is that the true king of Israel is never a human being. The true king of Israel is God. Remember, Israel rebelled and said, we want a human king. And God gave them one. They suffered the consequences ever since. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. It was never God's intention for human beings, his human beings that he created, to ever be ruled by other human beings. It was never God's design to have a president or a prime minister or a chancellor or a king or a queen or, you know, whatever the names are, a dictator out there. Because whenever you have human beings ruling over you, sinful human beings, it's going to cause trouble. It's just going to cause trouble, and we have the evidence of it all over the place in the world, Right? That's what happens when we reject God. In God's economy, he's the king. He's the judge. He's the one who rules and he reigns. The priest, the priest is like a defense attorney. He bears, he bears the names of Israel. And he comes before the king. And he makes atonement for their sins as a defense attorney. He represents them so that they can be forgiven so that they can continue to exist in the presence of God and experience mercy rather than judgment and condemnation. So king and priest have to remain separate. However, once upon a time, there was actually a priest who was also a king before Moses, before the law, and before the children of Israel. And his story is found way back in the book of Genesis, if you want to turn there for a moment, chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, we have a story about a king priest. Now, we meet him when Abraham is coming back from having rescued his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped with a bunch of other people by a guy named King Ketelaramar. I just, I don't know why I love that name, Ketelaramar. If you're going to have children looking for the name for a son, Ketelaramar. Just kidding, all right? He was a really bad guy. But let's say his name together. It's a tongue twister. Ketelaramar. Ready? One, two, three. You guys see, it's so easy for you. You guys are all so smart. Well, let's try this one. 
he, uh, there's another king in the passage named Melchizedek. Let me hear you say Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Oh, you got it down, all right? So here we go. Chapter 14, verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Ketelaramar and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high. Did you catch it? King of Salem and priest of God most high brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had acquired. So here's this guy, Melchizedek. We don't know where he comes from. We're told nothing about his ancestry. He just like pops on the scene. And just as quickly, he disappears from the scene. Never to be heard of again other than in Psalm and then in the New Testament. He is likened as a type of who Jesus is. Because in the book of Zechariah, the prophet, chapter 6, around verse 12, says that one day for the loins of Abraham will come one again who will be both priest and king. A clear, clear allusion to Jesus. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Melchizedek's name. If you divide his name in half, you take Melchi, all right, it comes from a word named Melakwitmi, which means to reign or to rule. Zedek comes from a word, Zedak, which means to make righteous or to justify. So what you end up in Melchizedek is a king who rules and reigns, but who also makes righteous and justifies. And that is, isn't it? I mean, that the picture of Jesus? The one who rules and reigns and yet who also justifies, but we have a, we have a problem when we get to Jesus in his humanity. And that is that Jesus descends to the line of David, from the line of Judah, not from the line of Aaron, the high priest. So how can one who is a king from the line of Judah also be a priest from the line of Aaron? He would have to be baptized into the priesthood somehow, and he is. He's baptized by a priest named John. We think of him as John the Baptist. John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, descended from Aaron. He's about as much as a priest as you could get. And whenever a priest was ordained into ministry, they had to go through two ceremonies. One, they had to be washed completely at the labor. We talked about that. And then, such as in Aaron's case, the oil would be poured over their head and run over the beard, and that was the anointing. Well, when was Jesus ever ordained to the priesthood. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, and let's look at that together. Matthew chapter 3. I hope you're just, I hope this causes you to want to read God's Word. Because God's Word is just filled with mysteries. It's so beautiful how God just lays out for us His patterns that He accomplishes on our behalf. Matthew chapter 3, and uh, verse 13. 
It says that Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. Why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. In other words, I need to be ordained into the priesthood. Look at verse 16. After his baptism, so Jesus is placed in the water by John, and he comes out of the water, right? Just like the priest is washed and comes out. It says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. That's the anointing. That's the anointing of Jesus. And it's the declaration of a new priesthood. Because the Bible goes on and tells us that Jesus is not being ordained as a priest in the line of Aaron. But he's being ordained as a priest in the line of Melchizedek. So now this guy, way back in Genesis 14, shows up again. And as one Jewish rabbi puts it, he says, it's as though at the baptism, it's as though Melchizedek shows up and takes the blessing back. that he gave to Abraham and says, I'm the king, I'm the priest. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, and I hope on your own you'll read this passage later on more carefully. Because it, it demonstrates for us why Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. Because Aaron's order... The priests in Aaron's lineage are all sinful. They all have to go in and make atonement for their own sins, let alone the sins of others. But you know, like this guy back here, Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. He's a picture of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is without sin. He can be our perfect high priest. So at the end of chapter 6 and verse 20, it says that Jesus has already gone in there for us. Gone in where? We talked about it a couple, uh, last weekend. He's gone into the Holy of Holies for us to make sacrifice for our sins through his blood, his life. Chapter 7 and then verse 1, we're kind of retold the story that we looked at in Genesis. I won't read that. But look what it says in chapter 7, verse 2. It says that Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. You know, you don't give someone a tenth of what you have unless you recognize they have authority over you. And Abraham recognized the authority of Melchizedek. It goes on and says, the name Melchizedek means king of justice. We talked about that. Now, if you take on the meaning of Salem, then he says it means king of peace. He says, there is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Now, you can read more on your own later on. I want you to come over to verse 23, though. In verse 23, it says, There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. 
Now, this is not possible, but, but imagine if for some reason Jesus ceased to exist, we'd all be banished from God's presence. The only way I can stand to be in the presence of God, the only way I can come into God's presence, that I will be with him forever and eternity, is because Jesus is alive. And he represents me constantly before the Father. It's because the merit of the Son, I have the promise of eternal existence in God's presence. Take Jesus out of the picture, I can't exist in the presence of God. All my works, I can be as good a person as I can possibly be. I can give away everything I have. I can even die for other people. And I'm not going to be able to spend the rest of my life in God's presence because I am unholy, I am sinful, I am a corrupt being. It is Christ who gives me that place and gives me that because of who he is and what he's done for me. But we're not, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. There's more beauty to this whole turban thing that we're, we're talking about. I want to go back again and I want to talk about that, that medallion piece that's on there. And I want, to, I want us to look at some interesting words in Exodus chapter 28. So turn there with me. And again, I, I just want to give credit to uh, Rabbi Khan, uh, who's helped a little bit with this, but another guy by the name of Robert Harris, who's, a, who's an expert in Semitic languages and the Torah, uh, who's been very, uh, very helpful in understanding some things I would have just missed because I, I would have just kind of glossed over them, but have taken on significance for me. Look at chapter 28, verse 12. In that passage, it says, Fasten the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as a reminder that Aaron represents the people of Israel. Now listen, Aaron will carry these names on his shoulders as a constant reminder whenever he goes before the Lord. So we're looking at the two onyx stones on the, on the shoulders with the names engraved in birth order of the sons of, of Jacob. It says he will nasah, he will carry them on his shoulders before God. Now, take uh, chapter 28 and come over to verse 29. In this way, Aaron will carry the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chest piece over his heart when he goes into the holy place. This would be a continual reminder that he represents the people when he comes before the Lord. Insert the Urim and Thummim into the sacred chest piece so they will be carried over Aaron's heart when he goes into the Lord's presence. In this way, Aaron will always carry over his heart the objects used to determine the Lord's will for his people whenever he goes in before the Lord. So he must nassah in the breast piece, he must nassah the stones that represent the tribes of Israel inscribed and the Urim Thummim folded in between. He must carry them always before God. Well, Jesus, the high priest, carries you and me before God. He brings us to his Father. Not only that, but he also not only carries me to God, but he carries away from me my sins. John chapter 1, verse 29. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who carries away or takes away the sins of the world. We talked about this in our series. We said when the old, in the Old Testament, when the high priest made atonement for the sins of the nation, 
He would kill one goat and sacrifice it and sprinkle his blood on the Holy of Holies. And then he would take the other, put his hands on it, confess over it the sins of the nation. And that goat would be led into the wilderness. We said that represents our sins being taken away as far as the east and the west. And remembered no more. Jesus carries it all away. But there's another aspect here of that medallion that he's wearing, holy to the Lord. Come back to chapter 28 and look at verse 37. Attach the medallion with a blue cord to the front of Aaron's turban, where it must remain. Aaron must wear it on his forehead so he may take on himself, NIV says, bear. But Robert Harris says if you study the Semitic language there, it actually means to lift up that he might lift up any guilt of the people of Israel when they consecrate their sacred offerings. He must always wear it on his forehead so the Lord will accept the people. So you have the concept of carrying. Now you have the concept, it's, it's a similar word to carry, of lifting up. Lifting up the guilt. In John chapter 3, about verse 14, I think it is, Jesus said, and if the Son of Man be lifted up, and he likens it to when Moses lifted up the stake in the wilderness with the bronze serpent on it, remember? Because the people were being afflicted because God was punishing them, vipers were biting them, and they were dying, and whoever looked on that, on that uh, serpent that was lifted up on that stick was healed. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm about to be lifted up on the cross, and whoever looks to me in faith will be healed, will be forgiven. So, in essence, our high priest Jesus, he lifts up our sins and takes them on himself as he's lifted on the cross, and he dies our death for us. Not only does he lift off our sins and incinerate our sins in his death, and his resurrection showed to us that it's been done for us. But he also lifts us up. He lifts us up. And then he places us, in a sense, on his shoulders. Just like the high priest bears on his shoulders the names of the tribes of Israel. Jesus bears on his shoulders your life and my life. It is such a beautiful picture. When I was a little boy, my parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. My dad would sometimes take me on trek into the jungles. And I still have a memory of these things. I was a young boy, about six or seven. And sometimes I'd ride on my dad's shoulders, but most of the time I would ride on the shoulders of one of the nationals that was with him and we go over rugged terrain and across these vine bridges that would sway back and forth. But I always felt secure because I was riding the shoulders of these strong men. And I don't know if you had the memory of ever riding the shoulders of your dad or your grandfather. Or maybe, you know, you were a, a cheerleader and you rode on someone's shoulder or a gymnast. Or, and and you, you were on top of there. You can feel you can feel the strength of the person who's carrying you. At least as a boy, I could. I could sense their strength. And they would have their arms wrapped around my legs, and I felt very secure. And I thought, I thought I was a giant. <laughs> I felt so tall. I felt, I felt so alive in that 
placed in that position. It was so comfortable not having to walk, but to ride on them as they climbed up over rocks and went across bridges. When my kids were little, I would carry them on my shoulders. My grandkids, when they were younger, I would carry them on my shoulders. And I'd hang on to those legs. And there's a certain age that kids are when they will trust you with everything in them. Then they get older and they hang on for dear life. But there's that certain age when they just, they just trust your strength. And I, you know, they just believe that I wouldn't dump them off. They believe that as long as they were on grandpa's or dad's shoulders, they were, they were superior. They were it. You got to see yourself that way. You got to see yourself on God's shoulders. Because that's where you are as a believer. You're riding on the shoulders of God. But you know what we all do, right? We fall into panic. Or we want down <laughs> so we can walk on our own. But there's never a better place to be than on his shoulders. Now think about that for a minute. As an adult, it's just hard for us to conceive riding on the shoulders of somebody, right? If somebody came up to you and said, here, get on my shoulders, you'd be like, no, I'm not getting on your shoulders. Be humiliating. What do you think I am? I'm not a kid. Got my own two feet. I can walk. You get on my shoulders. <laughs> See the pride in that? See the arrogance in that? We do the same thing to God. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus says, you've got to become like little children. And ride on my shoulders. I ask you a question. Can you, can you just close your eyes a moment with me? Just close your eyes. Use your imagination. Can you see yourself? Will you see yourself riding on the shoulders of the Lord? 